Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. I got you. Hey. Hey, guys. Welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, uh, this is going to be an episode where you're going to hear some people laugh, some people cry. Uh, This is going to be a very emotional episode, but a very learning episode. This is going to be part three of a series called A Soldier Story, and it's with my friend and brother, Jody Stubbs. But first, I want to thank our sponsor. If you guys love coffee as much as I do, there's a young lady, military veteran, has a company called Soldier Girl Coffee. I drink her coffee every single day. Check them out. Um, they also she also has started a brand new product, coffee product with CBD infused infusion for people that want to relax and people that need to chill out. I don't use that one, but I use the regular one. So definitely check out Soldier Girl Coffee, guys. This is going to be like I said, a great episode with a friend of mine. Uh, we've been we weren't friends in the military as much, but we became better friends after the military. And he's been through some struggles, but he's had some tra- tragedies. But now he's he's coming through with some triumphs. It's my friend Jody, brother. How are you doing today, man? I'm I'm absolutely fabulous. I'm enjoying life these days. And uh, how are you, brother? How are you been? How have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, you know, ever since I had that um talk with Brendan, uh, things have started to change for me better mentally because I felt a lot of shame knowing that I'm the one that should have got hit that day in the helmet because I'm the one that should have been in the hatch and uh, and he got hit instead. So I left, I lived for like 20 years dealing with that. But once we talked about it, uh, he kind of lifted it off my heart where I'm not feeling that pain anymore. So it's been very enlightening and pretty life-changing just talking to somebody, you know? Yes, sir. I understand completely. So, you know, tell us your story. You know, I wanted people to know your backstory. Uh, so tell us, where were you born? Where you where were you raised? And what kind of little boy was Jody? Okay, I was, uh, I was born in a little town called Lornburg, North Carolina. Uh, raised in McCall, South Carolina, an even littler town. <laughs> and I still live in McCall today. Um, I was the third of four kids. I had parents who, um, you, you hear a lot of talk about the, the parents of old, my parents were, they were strict. They were church going people and they were hardworking people, both of them, um, my dad just recently retired about five years ago when he turned 70 He and he would have worked longer if he could have, but, um, I mean, he's the only man I know that had open heart surgery, triple bypass and was back at work in three weeks. So that kind of tells you what kind of tough man he was. He was also a Marine. Okay. But, he, um, he was a Marine, huh? Yeah, he was a Marine. Um, he actually served during the Vietnam era. But back then, you know, rules were a lot different. And he had a brother that was already in Vietnam. So he wasn't allowed to go. 
And um, then his time was up, and he says he tried to go and he wanted to go, but his time was up, and he was in love with my mama at the time, and so things just got where he just went ahead and got out. But um, they raised us. When I say strict, I mean we done what they told us to in their house. You know what I mean, brother? Oh, I, it was never too early for an ass weapon, right? That's right. Hey, we're going to teach you with our words or we'll teach you with the belt if you don't listen to our words. But uh, Now, were you good in school? Were you a good student? I wouldn't say that. My mama swears that I had good grades, but I don't see any report cards to back up any of that talk but no i wasn't um i made honor roll a few times during the years but i was mostly an abc student you know what i mean okay i had my strong points and i had my weak points i I was terrible at math but i was good at science i was great at spelling but i was terrible at language or english arts ela but I was, you know, I was a happy kid. I had a brother. He was six years older. My baby brother was six years younger, but my sister was just 15 months older. So me and her were closer. And um, But we grew up in a small town, a real tight-knit family, a tight-knit church family, a tight-knit school family. So uh, I had a good childhood overall. So I can't complain very much. So tell me about your recruiting story to go into the military. Okay. Um, I watched my oldest brother. He attempted to go into the military and he failed out because he had his hearing wasn't up to par. And, uh, you know, the war stories of guys who miss out and, this one won't take you, but you can always find another one. But he was set on going into the Air Force, and he couldn't make it. So he just kind of gave up his hope of the military. So when it come my time, I remember in high school taking the ASVAB. But I didn't want to go directly out of high school. I wanted to go to a trade school and see what I could do there first before I went in the military. So I joined the delayed entry program. Graduated in 91, and I wasn't going to go until 1992. And then I changed my mind again and put it off again, and I didn't go until 93. I actually joined the United States Navy. Um, so in September 93, I shipped to uh, Great Lakes, Illinois, I think it got about 10 degrees around mid-October and it stayed there or below all the way through December 23rd when I come home. <laughs> yeah. Man, it, it was cold it and snowing. It's not South Carolina. You know what I'm saying, brother? Yeah. So, uh, now, how are you doing the Navy? I, I was going to be a... I was an engineer working in the uh, main boiler room, main engine room. I wanted to be a boiler technician, but I was still young and wet behind the ears. And I was realizing that the military takes up a lot of your time away from home. And 
I was freshly married in 1994, my first wife, and um, we got married, we got eloped, and four days later, I was uh, in the North Atlantic heading towards Israel and um, doing a Mediterranean cruise is what the uh, Navy likes to refer to them as. That's where we hit different ports over in uh, Western Europe, We uh, Spain, uh, Italy, Israel, a um, bunch of different ports back and forth. But you know, I had a, I had a good time. I met some good people. I, I met some lifelong friends. I'm still friends with quite a few people from the ship that I served on the USS Nassau LHA four, which was a we were a marine hauler basically. We were like a mini um, aircraft carrier, the second largest. Uh, type of ship in the fleet at the time and uh, I had a had a ship's crew of about a thousand with the capability of carrying between 12 and 1500 marines with us so we were a pretty big pretty big ship uh, even at times we carried um, some SEAL teams dropped them off in places I can't tell you what they were doing i can only tell you that we stopped for a day or two and they'd be gone and then they'd come back so how many years did you do the navy i did two years active duty and i decided it wasn't for me i didn't like living in norfolk virginia which is where i was stationed it was just too busy too congested and um at the time of my enlistment coming up our Ship was in dry dock doing major overhaul repairs, so I just decided I'm gonna get out. And so, 1995, I was out of the Navy, separated. They put me on inactive reserve to finish my contract, which ran into July of 2001. And um, so they sent me my discharge papers and all that, and then uh. Of course, 9-11 happened, and me, like so many other people, and I know a bunch of guys that you talked to, or, you know, they were out in the military, and they wanted to come back in. They wanted to serve their country, and I felt the same way, brother. I felt like I still was young enough, and I still owed it to my country to defend her, so I rejoined back in the uh, South Carolina National Guard. Now, did you have to go through basic training and all that again, or did you just have to go through AIT? Just had to go through AIT, which uh, I don't think was three weeks, maybe something like that. And uh, went out to Boise, Idaho for for my AIT training. I actually done it. And um, when we got mobilized for Noble Eagle back in 2002, I know you remember, you and Brendan actually covered pretty good time on that. But um that was when I did my AIT. I'd already been on the tank and done a gunnery downrange <laughs> before I'd finished AIT. So uh, I don't know. Could I say that? We might have to delete that part. Well, we, this is all live, brother. We ain't deleting nothing. This is just the way it is. So the, the, the army may not like that, but that's the way it was in the National Guard. You know how it was so, in our time. So now, talk to us about your experience with no, Noble Eagle. 
Okay, I was, if you remember, we did, we had a troops and out to Fort Jackson, which is where you were sent, I believe, yep, correct? Fort Jackson. Relax. We had Jackson. A, Jackson. Then we had a group sent out to Fort Gordon, which is in Georgia, right down I-20. I was at Fort Stewart with the command circle that was running the whole Noble Eagle thing. And there was only approximately 35, 40 Joes and the rest were officers. And we were all there and I was working with the command center. So me, I was working directly for, um, Sergeant Allen Bibbert. I don't know if you remember him, Sergeant First Class Bibbert. No, I don't remember him. He was uh, well. He was one of my first uh, platoon commanders, platoon sergeants, and um, and uh, a great guy, wonderful guy. Um, and uh, that's pretty much where I got my taste of learning the ropes and everything from. Sergeant Verbert, uh, Sergeant Michael Williams was there. Sergeant Rusty McKenzie, who is just, I mean, Rusty McKenzie is just my idol, the greatest guy that I ever worked for, worked with. And um, also Sergeant Major Ellington, if you remember Mike Ellington. Oh, yeah, he was great. And I, and I loved Rusty also. I think Rusty was great people. Yeah, Rusty's a great guy. But uh, uh, And then after... Oh, three or four months, they took Sergeant – well, he was Sergeant First Class Everton at the time. He took a group and moved out to Fort Benning, Georgia, which is further southwest Georgia. And so we were covering four bases, Homeland Security at Noble Eagle. Um, most of my time, like I said now, was all Fort, uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia, and – I was uh, pretty much the driver for the colonel and the uh, and the sergeant major, the battalion sergeant major. They had to go here or other bases or whatever. I did a lot of driving for them. Now, what I rank would, were you at this time? Oh, I was just an E2 at the time. I come into National Guard as an E2, and it's like everybody forgot that I was even there. With Noble Eagle being mobilized, I'd been an E2 for over a year and a half in the National Guard. And, you know, E3 is an automatic rank. I just got skipped over. Somebody just missed the paperwork. But uh, when somebody finally caught up to me and caught the paperwork, within six months, I was E4. <laughs> so everything got straightened out, and I was an E4. And then come the end of Noble Eagle... We were demobbing at Fort Stewart, or we were allowed to stay on at Fort Jackson for another year if we wanted. I took the option to go to Fort Jackson for the second year. But then three months after that, they demobbed us anyway. They said, well, we don't really need you guys. And uh, so in first of 2004 into 2003 somewhere in there i was finished with noble so, you know what you know that's what me and brendan were talking about you know like when we were on uh national when we were activated you know we got paid really good you know we got we got yes, paid baq baah all that good stuff so yeah. 
what was it like coming off of Noble Eagle and going trying to go back into civilian life? How was your job still there for you? What kind of was there a struggle there? No, um, the company I worked for, they was uh, there at the time. The company was named Willamette. It was a paper mill there from uh, northern state of Washington, uh, uh, Oregon, excuse me, up that way. And they eventually sold out. It's it's actually a Canadian-owned company now. But at the time, I mean, they were big. They were – they supported our military so much. As a matter of fact, Sergeant Major Elton worked there at the paper mill as well, so I had knew him prior to the National Guard. But um, there was quite a few National Guard folks that worked there in um, different units, and they were just real good to us. Now, let me say one thing. You guys at Fort Jackson, y'all were getting the BAH, the BAQ, and the uh, extra pay. Us at Fort Jackson, we weren't getting all the extra. All we got was the BAQ. <laughs> so because they said we had, uh, we were living in uh, a motel and not in barracks, a yeah. barracks. So they were providing us with better housing. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, transitioning back to civilian life was, wasn't hard. Um I mean, because basically we did not do a lot of, yeah, we were trained uh, uh, guard fences and uh, my entrances and um, ammo points and different other things on bases, you know. But really, a terrorist attack against a, a military base wasn't, I'm not going to say it wouldn't happen, but um, after 9-11, I think we were far away from seeing too many more terrorist attacks right so away. So what was your reaction when we got the warning order in, in 2006 at, at our national training when, when we got the warning order for Afghanistan? Ah, we were at... Uh, what was that like? Because that's when it got real, right? That's... You know, I... Brother, I... I I expected it. I was waiting on it, and I didn't know. I always felt like, you know, South Carolina National Guard, especially our guard unit, the whole 263rd Armor, man, we had some we had some guys that were just, I mean, we had some beasts, you know what I mean? We had some guys that were in shape. We had some guys that were outstanding marksmen um we just had we had guys who they performed well they checked every box and i was wondering why we hadn't been activated already i really was but um but then when you start activating you find people would there were some people who had good excuses there were some people who just had excuses and then you had well us guys that were ready to go. And then we had guys like you who was ready to go, and the army kicked back. No, uh, man, I I know how you felt. But no, I don't know how you felt. 
I could sympathize with how you felt. You know, I hate that you didn't go with us, brother. I wish you could have. I, I always liked you when I first met you, which I'd known you probably around 2002 or 2003. I first met you. I can't remember if I met you before Noble Eagle or right when we mobilized, but uh, I hated this. There were guys that wanted to go that got kicked back, and there were guys that just whatever reason, one or another, and I forgive them all now. I have no hard feelings against anyone. But there were people who decided they didn't want to go. And then there were people who had jobs that they had to do in rear detection. Now, were you married at this time? I was still married to my first wife, and um, she was – she was a wonderful lady. We got two kids together. We got two grandkids now. Um, she did not understand why I was going to go on this trip because we were told if you've done no wiggle, you don't have to go on this. You can volunteer to go, but you they weren't going to say, hey, you got to go to – Afghanistan, but I think they knew pretty much that we were all we were all going we were going to be there for the most part we were, and she was not liking it at all, and um, so, but I tried to explain to her, you know, it's duty to honor. It was what I was supposed to do. She dealt with it, but she didn't like it. Now you know, Mahaney had so many glowing words for you, and. He said you were one of the best NCOs that he's ever had. And he put you right up there with Command Sergeant Major Cheatham's. So that's pretty high. That's pretty high praise right there. So, and I consider you a, a great NCO. You know, I, I consider you one of my mentors. So now talk to us. You guys are locked, ready to rock, rock, lock and loaded on the plane. What was it like touching down? in Afghanistan. Well, brother, thank you for the kind words. I, I do appreciate that. Um, when we first touched down was, well, we, um, I'm, I'm not going to recover the whole story, but um, Mahaney laid it out pretty good. We, we stayed in Germany for a little over a week. And then we got to uh, Kyrgyzstan uh, part of the old mother Russia or and we were stuck there and it was just so cold we we flew over at the end of December 1st of January I mean it was just so cold and the uh, the uh, snow and ice everywhere it was just hard getting in and out but from Kyrgyzstan to Afghanistan we were taking those military flights from then on so um we got there. I remember getting there. It was at night time. I, I really don't know if it was early morning or just late night. Or I remember getting there. I was tired, brother. I wanted to take a nap, but I was probably more scared that first week and a half than I'd ever been in my life. I wouldn't show it for anybody, but it was there was a fear running through me that I just could not. I mean, I was almost shaking. You yeah. know what I mean? 
And uh, because you're hearing war stories, you hear the tales before of woe before you go, and then as soon as you get there, you got people meeting you at the at the uh, getting off the plane, telling you their tales of woe, and then you come to find out most of these guys had been on secure bases the whole time and never got out in the country and. So the scary part was the stories, but the guys hadn't been through the scary part, which I'm sure we'll get to now, later let me on. Ask you but a question, uh, you know, because you know Mahaney, I think he was still he was still a specialist, or he might have just got promoted to sergeant. Um, what was it like? You know, because I when I became an NCO, I lived the NCO creed. Uh, I've always right made sure that everybody was taken care of before me and I was worried about everybody yeah. else. So what was it like being an NCO and having these E4s, E3s and taking them outside of the wire and having, and worrying about their safety and that they get to go home safe. All right. Well, here's the, here's the deal. Um, brother, I was at the time when we were mobilized and everything we were doing and the way our teams were set up and squads and all, I was just a team leader. Our squad leader was a knee sticks who was, uh, I was a knee five at the time and our E six, uh, Sergeant Wilson, a good guy. I'm not knocking the man for anything. Uh, the guy was, he was a nice guy. But he was um, probably early 50s. His knees were going bad. His shoulders weren't good. And he, I'm not going to say he wasn't capable of being a squad leader. But I will say that they probably should have. Instead of putting the guy there and then having to remove him because they had to remove him out of position before we mobilized. So when they moved him out of position, Lieutenant Broadway and Sergeant Cheatham, they came to me and promoted me to the position. Now, you know, the Army motto is, you know, the guy above you's role and you know the guy below you's role. So I was thrown into squad leader position two days before we flew to Afghanistan. So here I am, a young E5, doing the E6 role, and instead of responsible for three other guys, now I got two full teams. I got eight guys that I'm responsible for. And um, uh, PCCs, PCIs, your combat checks, your combat inspections, Make sure you got plenty of ammo and you got plenty of water. And we can eat later. We can eat in three days, whatever. I mean, I just, that's the way I felt, you know. Keep hydrated, keep plenty of ammo because we're going to come back alive. We, if we got to shoot everything down we see we're coming back alive that was the commitment i made to my guys and that's that's really how so i felt about us it about the day that um well the, the at the time that we lost 
Sergeant Philpot and Sergeant Bullard. Okay. Um, the thing about that was I had my wife, like I said at the time, I was still married to my first wife. Um, early October, we were we just come back to our base. We were messing around, shooting some basketball, playing PT, you know. And me and another guy collided, and he cracked a bone in my nose. So I had to leave from Turn Count and go down to a, which was a little small base where run by the um, the Dutch were running that base. We were just sitting there. We had a couple of pods there right outside the base there, uh, where our crew was stationed. And um, I had to go to Kandahar, where they had a nice big hospital and all. So I get up there, and as soon as I get there, I get a phone call, which it was actually worked pretty well that I went to Kandahar because they wouldn't have had to – tried to track me down to find me my mother-in-law at the time passed away so i was going home for emergency leave for her funeral and all of that thing so i'm home and the day before i leave to go back to afghanistan i'm i'll never forget it i was sitting on the couch at my mother-in-law's house well my father-in-law and my wife was right beside me and um, I don't remember what was on TV, but I remember Bob Jubeck of Channel 13 comes up on the TV and says, a local soldier killed in Afghanistan. I'm like, what? So I'm, I, you know, this is on my mind as I'm heading back to Afghanistan. I'm catching the four o'clock out of Georgia trying to get back to Afghanistan and I'm dealing with who got killed and um, well uh, Brendan talked a lot about how the communications are supposed to stop when one of the guys are killed and how things went wrong with Phil Pot well I never even heard Phil Pot's name until um, I got back to um Kazakhstan and passing through one of the other guys from our unit he was going home a guy named Patrick Martin and he was the one who told me that it was Phil Pot I said man I hate to hear that I, I, I didn't know Phil Pot well but Edward was one of them I, from what I knew of him he loved his family he loved his little girls man that that dude was I mean, he just loved his wife and he loved his kids. He loved his country, but he 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 really loved them and he wanted nothing more to make it home. And I mean, it hurt me when he died, you know. I, I, but I didn't hear this until four days later. And at the same time, that's when uh, when I passed Martin in Kyrgyzstan, he's asking me what happened to Romano because he knew Louis was one of my Louis Romano was one of my soldiers was at my base, and uh, you know Romano got shot in the face by a sniper, 
day. My group had been out on a mission, and I was just coming back. You know, that's where he got shot in the face. And um, I said, man, I don't know. I hadn't heard anything. I said, I'm just coming back in. And he said, yeah, I heard he got shot. He said, I don't know how he's doing. So now I'm dealing with the depth of field pot and hearing Romano's been shot, and I didn't know how bad he was. And the communications are down. I can't get in touch with nobody over the phone. So I finally get back in Afghanistan, and um, I find out Romano's good. He's hurt bad, but he's good. And they'd already, they'd already got him over to Germany, I think, it, by then. So uh, anyway, I get back to Kandahar Airfield. And I'm waiting for my flight out. I'm setting it. Let me take that back. I was at Bargham Airfield. I was setting at Bargham Airfield because I was sitting at the Pat Tillman USO Memorial Building. And uh, just waiting for my flight. It was right across from the flight line. I was waiting for my flight back to... I was going to fly into Kandahar and then from Kandahar to uh, bus down to... Tearing Cout, which is, like I said earlier, where I was stationed. And I'm sitting there at the Pat Tillman Memorial, and I, um, Sergeant Major, so, excuse me, Sergeant Major Elwinton calls me. He said, boy, where you at? I figured he was just calling, making sure I was back, you know, in the country, because my time was already up. I said, I'm back in country, Sergeant Major. I said, I just got back in. Um, I said, I'm fixing to fly out from here, from Bogham down to Kendahar. I said, I should be there just a little bit to sign the paper. Well, little did I know the reason the flights were delayed was because there was another attack on U.S. forces down that way. He said, well... There's something I got to tell you. He said, I'm not supposed to tell you right now, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. He said, because I don't think you would tell it. He said, and I know how close you were. He said, but we lost another guy. I said, oh, man. I mean, my heart dropped, you know. He said, it was David Bullard. And I just, brother, I mean, I, 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 From that day for the next couple of days, I was just in a haze. I don't remember a whole lot. But I remember they got me down to Kandahar, and I'm standing there waiting around. I'm looking for those guys, anybody that was with David, with Bullard. Um, and I hear about um, Mahaney been shot in the head and I didn't know how he was doing and uh, all of a sudden this Humvee pulls up like right beside me and Broadway jumps out of it and he just comes up to me man he just give me the biggest hug and me and Broadway just sat there crying and hugging for about five minutes there looked like a couple little kids just I don't know, man. It was uh, it was so surreal. You know what I'm saying? And um, 
he's telling me the story about Mahaney and said Mahaney's up at the hospital. He said, let's ride up there and look at him. So we go up there. Mahaney, I don't know if he remembers this, but I'll never forget. <laughs> and I'm trying to make light of a bad situation, brother. Don't, don't, no, no one out there feel hard at me because this was a tough time for all of us. But Mahaney comes out and this Sergeant Major, <laughs> the guy's been shot in the head four times, people. His helmet is shattered and in pieces. There's no telling where his field cap was. All he had was a toboggan wearing on his head. Now we're on a garrison post in country. You're supposed to have a, some type of cover on your head. And Mahaney's walking without any cover because he's leaving the hospital. And then, like I said, his helmet shouted. <laughs> and this sergeant major of the post is jumping his ass <laughs> because he didn't have a cover on. And it was just, I, man, it was the funniest thing. I guess you had to be there, brother. I'm not. Um, and I can, I can just, just your mood a little. Mahaney just looking at him like. Are you serious? You can't, you can't be serious I mean, right now. He's like, man, I just got shot in the head four times. I'm I really, I'm sure he had a good concussion. His ears probably still ringing at the time, and this sergeant major yelling at him. But I digress. What can you so do, now, brother? It was how uh, much longer did you stay was, in Afghanistan after that? Okay, that was October. That day was October 30th. And, um, and man, let me tell you what, if you've never been, I think the worst thing in the world was the next formation when they're not there and they're doing the honorary tributes to, to the fallen. And uh, I was told I needed to get on back to my base. And I said, I'm not. I'm staying for Bullard's tribute. You wouldn't, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't have poured hot doo doo on me and got me off of that base right then. I wasn't leaving you know, until and most that people was don't over. Realize, you know, the difference between the National Guard and regular Army is, you know, a lot of us, you know, even though I was a Yankee that transplanted, you know, a lot of us, you know, they, right. we grew up together. You know, we knew, we went to funerals, right. we went to weddings. We went to barbecues. You know, everybody knew each other's mother. You seen each other in Walmart. It, it wasn't just like exactly. uh, you know a regular army where you know you, you're served with a guy and then you never see him again. Yeah, you you served next door to a guy for three years and then one day he's PCS and you never hear from him again. You don't even know his last or uh, his first yeah. name half the time. The only reason you know his last name is because it's on his uniform. But we knew we to me, you were rich. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I was Jody, Brendan. Uh, that's that's what so, we were to one another. We weren't just Sergeant Stubbs or Sergeant Kaufman. It, it, we were literally out in the field, out in life. I knew David Bullard. I mean, he was he worked at the uh, local food line. I seen him all the time. And I run into him. I mean, 
you're talking about a guy seeing three, four times a week yeah. into his house. You know what I'm saying? And um, yeah, we uh, I was one of the guys. I had a family and all, and my kids were young at the time, so a lot of the guys didn't bother me. They would come over, but it wasn't like they were bothering me because they knew I had family, the young kids and stuff like that. And um, I helped guys as much as I could. They helped me as much as they could. But, you know, the ones with the younger kids, you kind of give them a little more space because they still raising kids. But you were still – we still done things together. Like you said, we barbecued together. We – we would see each other in Walmart. We 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 were friends, man. We were more than we were more so than just guys like, in the same know, unit. When we got when you guys got home, um, and you demobed and you went back to your units, you know what was that like? Because I know like when I mean, because I didn't go to Afghanistan, obviously. Um, but I know when we got off Noble Eagle, it seemed like everybody it became fractured. There was your Jackson guys. There was your Fort Stewart guys. It it didn't seem like a family right. anymore. And a lot of people, I'm not mentioning any names because I'm not not about that. Um, they were just covering their own asses. Um, so was, so what was yeah, it like coming happened. home? And because you know there are some people that we lost, and I'm not going to mention any names because you know I respect them, but. Um, you know, they lost their lives eventually to alcoholism, you know, drank themselves to death. And we know who we're talking about. But is that when when you got home, is is that when the proverbial shit hit the fan? When I got home, I'm going to say for about five or six months, I put on a, uh, I put on a good mask, you know, I lived in the world and I just said, Hey, everything's good. You know what I mean? I, I was having sleepless nights. I was doing a lot of staying up, looking at the ceiling. And I was, what I'd done was I let it brew inside of me. You know what I mean? I did not, I didn't vent to anyone. I didn't talk to anyone. I just let the stuff brew inside of me. Uh, and like you said, the fracture happened. So a lot of guys that were at Gordon, I wasn't friends with as close with anymore. I'm not going to say I wasn't friends with because I was still friends with them. But uh, we weren't as close anymore. When we stepped off the field, off the uh, plane at Fort Stewart, or the bus at Fort Stewart, we actually flew into Hunter Army Airfield and then bus to Fort Stewart. Got on the parade grounds, and uh, me and maybe eight or nine other guys, we were told we were going straight to McCready Training Center for PLDC, which is Primary leadership development um, course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Warrior oh, leader yeah. course is World. what it's called now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so here we are. I mean, we get one night. We could go to dinner with a family. They look at me. They said, don't have nothing to drink. You're leaving in the morning. And they were serious. And uh, so we went out. 
my family drove all the way to Georgia and then had to turn around and go home without me because I had to get on the bus. And, and I mean, we argued and we complained the whole day. No, no. And this is, and when I tell you this was a surprise on us, it was, we did not know this was coming. Uh, Justin Strickland, you know, Justin, well, he was one of us that had to go. He just finally dropped out the course. He just said, screw it. I'm done. I'm going home. I'm not, I'm not putting up with it. I'm All not right, going. I'm not doing this because this is interesting to me. You you spent two years in Afghanistan, going to PLDC, and they start teaching you this stupid shit. You know, because I went to, to back then, but you know, land nav and, and but it was stuff that you did in real life, to where the people that were teaching that you, were- you could have taught the course. And half of the time, they were never even deployed or mobilized. So I'm sure that had to, right. like they say in the South, stick in your craw a little bit. Well, I'm going to put it like this. The two instructors that I had, they recognized it right away. They, um, I mean, they gave me high marks on everything. I walked out of PODC as the honor graduate from that whole course out of 190 students. I had the highest average in the whole course, but they recognized it right away. I don't know if the rest of the school recognized the rest of the instructors, but my two instructors did. Okay. What was that like graduating and then coming? So then that was over. So now I'm, I finally come home and um, like I said, for six, five, six months, everything was everything was great. And then anger that was that was already inside me started boiling up to the the, the surface, brother. I was mad. David was gone, Bullard. I was mad. Sergeant Philpot was gone, Edward. I was mad Romano was hurt. I was mad um, Mahaney was hurt. You know, these were – and three of those guys were all in my platoon. Our uh, mobilization, they were in my platoon. Two of the severely hurt and one killed come from my platoon. So my third platoon was real close. We had, like, uh, you heard Mahaney talk so much about Sergeant Cheatham, man. And Sergeant Cheatham used to tell you, he, he meant it. He was the standard, and he wasn't lying. The guy was six foot three, 180 pounds, just lean. He could run a four-minute mile. I mean, he <laughs> not maybe not that fast, but he was – I mean, he could smoke the PT test. You know what I'm saying? He – he he walked the walk, but he all the talk that he gave, you know, he time, could back it up. Time, you know, like a lot of people don't realize that it's the times at night when you're sitting there in bed looking at stealing, talking, thinking about all the what ifs or the I should haves. Is that what ate you up inside? Um. When it comes to boiler, yeah, it should have been me. I, I had that. I, I I let that survivor's guilt get me for the longest time, and I, I 
and even now I feel like it should have been me. The guy had just had a, a newborn baby right before I was coming home for emergency leave for my mother-in-law passing their Bullard and them were up there at, um, at Kandahar and he's like, Hey man, go see the baby, go see the baby. Since you got to go home. I, I mean, I had to finally tell him I would, so he would shut up about it. You know what I'm saying? And I, I told him, I said, yeah, man, I'm, I'll swing by and I'll see the baby. I didn't want to bother his wife, Amber, who was a lovely woman. I love her to death. I think the world of her. And um, I just didn't want to bother her because she just had a kid. She's already without her husband. He's in Afghanistan. They were newly married. You know, their honeymoon was spent with the two weeks lead that we had going to, you know, from Mississippi before we shipped out to um, Afghanistan. That was their honeymoon. <laughs> so I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be the guy that was going to go bother her, but I told him to appease him because he kept, hey, he was so proud of his son, ma'am. And he only got to hold him like one day, you know, before he had to come back to Afghanistan and I said, yeah, Dave, I'll go by there and see her. I said, I'll go see her one day before I come back. And um, But I knew in my mind I wasn't going to do it. I was telling him that. And then the day I get back, you know, I get the news that he's been killed. And I felt like I felt like a dirt bag. You know what I mean, Rich? I was so... I lied to the guy the last time I seen him. I, f I felt so low, and I felt like, man, that should I should have been there instead of him. And that survivor's guilt hit me hard, brother. And um, so during the next couple of years, I guess I just mourned it. Uh, outwardly mourned it. I started showing up. I started doing I started drinking heavily. Um, this is late 2008. You know, I started getting in trouble for my drinking. Okay. Um, I got arrested one time, but the cop couldn't prove I was driving because I was out of the car, out of the vehicle. So he could only arrest, he arrested me for DUI, but it didn't stick. I only got, uh, I got lucky, so it was only a uh, reckless driving charge. The judge couldn't let a DUI stick because he did not see me driving the car, did not see me behind the wheel. And I wasn't going to yep. tell on myself, so, so you know by, what I mean? By 2013, right. um, you've been married twice, divorced twice, and then you became... Right. homeless and this is you know i consider you you know for me you know you're a a hero and i consider mahaney a hero and but both you guys ended up homeless now was it because of the drinking or was this everything out of control I look back now and I see how much different I could have done things. It when I 
when I tell you I started getting out of control with my drinking and all, well, then the womanizing started. I started running around on my wife, my first wife, and I met my second wife. I run around on my wife with her, and she was married at the time, so neither one of us were up to any good and we say we were in love with one another but i think we were more in lust with one another and we ended up with a child from that relationship but we broke up before we got married okay and uh so me and her broke up and here i am with no place to go and uh my first wife who i'm divorced from she actually let me move back in her house and sleep on her couch for a few weeks anyway. And I found, a, this is 2009, I found me an apartment over in Florence, South Carolina. I was moving in, the day I was moving in was uh, December 7th, 2009. And I got my daughter with me, my oldest daughter. She was, oh, 13, 12, 13 at the time, something like that. And she was with me. And her mama calls and she said, uh, take Misty to my sister's house and drop her off. And I need you to come by here. Me and you have something to talk about. I was like, oh, boy, she's going to want back rent or something, you know, for me sleeping on a couch. And uh, so I get to her house and um, she said, come on with me. We got to go to the hospital. Your brother's been in a wreck. And uh, I, I'm sorry, brother. I thought I'd, no, I brother, thought I'd be I, all right. I am. The, I'm good. And the thing is, I remember this day. Um, uh, and, and yep. so, and what you know, what an effect. So, um, and I want you to, you know, this is it's all because some people right now that's listening to this. So there's one person out there that's struggling today and that's what this is all about brother this right. is what the lord the lord the lord sent you through me today to, to talk to that one person so tell us your story okay um so my brother this was my baby brother now he um we get to the hospital and uh i go in the emergency room um, I didn't, my ex-wife was not telling me everything. She was just telling me he was in a bad wreck and it was pretty serious. Uh, little did I know at the time she already knew, but she didn't tell me. So I'm up at the emergency room talking to the lady at the mirror and she's like, sir, we don't have a Eric Stubbs here. She said, uh, Hold on just a second. Let me go check real quick. Maybe there's something else. And uh, so she comes back, and then another lady comes walking out the door from behind, and she walks up to me. She says, sir, come with me. So I thought maybe they found him. She's going to take me back there where he's at. But uh, she takes me back to the quiet room in the back of the hospital and I said oh boy and she just sets me in there me and my ex-wife are sitting in there and uh, nobody's telling me anything 
And it seemed like days, brother, it seemed like days. Well, it turned out it was probably just a 30 minutes, maybe. Um, my mom shows up, my brother shows, my older brother shows up, um, my dad shows up with his preacher. My mom and dad are divorced now. They were divorced at the time. Um, so we're all sitting in this quiet room. Here comes two patrolmen and a, a female doctor who was, uh, she was, the, I guess, the one in charge of the hospital at that time that night. And uh, anyway... Not to point fingers at anyone. I'm not mad at anybody, but there were some people who thought, you know, well, he's been to Afghanistan. He should let him go see him, let him see his body. Uh, they had done told us he was dead. He had, uh, he had uh, perished. And uh, they were saying that they would have to send the body off for autopsy uh, to, I think they said they would send him up to. Chapel Hill for an autopsy. Uh, um, now this 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 is something that's in my brain, brother. That I'll never get out. It, it's stuck there. All the bad things I saw in Afghanistan, you know the the blood and. and and other stuff, you know, I saw a lot of it over there. We saw a lot of action where I was and nothing hit me harder than the night of December 7th, 2009. This nurse, well, I'm, uh, pardon me, ma'am, if you're listening, it was a doctor. I don't remember her name. She was back there. She took me back and she said, no, Mr. Stubbs, I'm going to tell you now. She said, you don't understand how bad your brother's body is burnt. Um, she said, we had to put him in two two uh, body bags. That's how bad he was. Okay. And uh, so I go in there, and I mean, they open this body bag, and I see I got a black dog. He was blacker than my dog was. That's how, I mean, and I'm talking head to toe. Other than like a two-inch space on his wrist where you could actually see skin. And my brother had a flame tattoo on his wrist, and you could see the flame on his wrist. And I was like, oh, my God. I knew it was him. I could tell by the facial structure, although it was all burnt and all all the skin was gone, hair was gone, everything was gone. I I could tell it. And I said, um I said, let me ask you one thing. Um he only had part part of his arm was there. The rest of it was his other arm was it had fell off. It the, it burnt through, I guess you'd say. I don't know. I, um, 
I said, did uh, was there some metal pins in his? She said, sir, that's the one thing I was waiting on. She said, you tell me that. I won't send him off for an autopsy because uh, she said, you're pretty sure. I said, I'm 100% sure. That's him. She said, yeah, the metal from his legs where he was, when he was a child, he had been ran over by a car and they had to put metal in his leg to set his leg again because he, he broke both legs when he was hit by now, a car. Now, after this, so, uh, did this send you in, into a deeper spiral? Yes. That was, that um, that right there, I went home and, man, I, I started drinking. And brother, I didn't quit drinking for right, seven so years. You tell me after because, you know, for people that are listening to this, um, I'm a recovering drug addict, recovering alcoholic, 32 years sober. Um, what was your, what was the final moment where you said, um, "I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired," and what was that come to Jesus moment? Oh, uh, okay. Well, 30 years I went on and. I done divorced, married and divorced the second time, uh, which drinking had a lot to do with that. And uh, I even started started using pain pills a lot. Um, so I, I was, man, I was, wow. Rich, I would take, I, I bought a cooler specifically to sit beside my bed so if I would wake up in the middle of the night, I would have beer in the cooler and I wouldn't have to walk to the refrigerator. No, no. You know what I'm you're, saying? You're, you're preaching this to the how, choir, brother. This is how bad I was drinking, bro. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what I'm saying. But um, every dime I had, I I went from 180 pounds of – I was lean, in shape. I I was doing good. But I went from 180 pounds to about 130 pounds of just pure bones. And uh, I met my wife that I'm married to now. This is the third marriage. But uh, she has been, she was my saving grace, man. Um, I met her in a bar. (laughs) But she had uh, quit drinking because she wanted to take care of me because she knew how bad I was. And uh, she had lived a hard lifestyle herself through the years. And so she, she was very familiar with PTSD and the, and the tragedies that I had went through and everything. And um, my brother, my oldest brother called me one day, said, how about going to church with me? You know, I was raised in church, but by now I'm having a lot of struggles with, with Christianity, with any religion, I, anything religious. I just, I got to almost where I didn't believe anymore. You know what I'm saying? But, um, so we went to church one day and, uh, we started going pretty regular. And then one Sunday, Sunday morning, we got up, we went to church. We left church. I said, take me by the bar. I'm going to drink. I was just having a rough day, and now I'd already attempted suicide twice by then. One time, I, I think I was trying to see if I would do it, 
But the second time when I tried it, I thought, man, this I'm just going to do it and get it over with, and it's going to be over with. And, and I couldn't. I just couldn't finish mm-hmm. doing it. You know what I mean? I wanted to, but I couldn't. The Lord spared me. And um, so I went to church that morning. We left. I went to the bar. Um, I don't remember the whole day. My wife remembers it a lot better. She was sober. But I told her to come and get me. I said, I had to change. I said, something's got to change. I knew that something had to change or I was going to be dead. And um, that day was January 4th, 2015. I went back to church that night. And I that was a Sunday night, Sunday evening. And um, I give my heart to the Lord that day. And ever since then, I've not touched another drop. I've put it aside and uh, even I've even had doctors tell me said you don't quit drinking you have to wean yourself off of drinking when you an alcoholic like you were my liver had enlarged that it was all the way across my stomach that's how enlarged my liver was that's how uh, bad I had gotten but uh, I'd Quit, you know what? Never I remember that drop, night brother. because you posted on Facebook that you said, that's it. I'm done. Uh, I'm not drinking anymore. And that's when we started going back and forth. You know, so, and that's when I think our right. relationship yep. really um, started to take off. Well, see, that was one thing about you that I never knew. I never knew you were in recovery. I mean, I thought you were a good guy. I thought you, you know, you were one of the boys, but I never knew that you were a recovering alcoholic as well. But until then, and then that's when we really connected on another level. You're right. Um, and uh, we, we really now did. We reached because, out. You know, now you're, you're remarried. You've got a beautiful yeah. bride. Um, you're, that you're raising three girls that aren't even your own. Please talk about that. Because, you know, some people okay, think that, um, you know, like they say, you know, when you when you be, go get into recovery or when you start changing your life, that you stop living for yourself and you start living for others. So talk to us about that, right. that change and, and now how you're having these little beautiful babies around you all the time. Okay. Um, and um, early 2018, um, it, they're... And I'm not I'm not gonna belittle anyone. But the these girls, their their dad is my wife's nephew. And uh him and their mom, which he didn't have custody, she did, but they both had struggles. They've had the way they grew up and the life they live in, they they were dealing with things and they had made bad turns in life. Not bad people, just bad decisions. And uh, so it comes to one day, uh, DSS. Well, and, you know, I think that's such a, a blessing that you're able to be there 
and you know god is really god is really working in your life you know hey man i'm sorry i lost connection for a second i apologize it's okay so you know i think that's just such a blessing it's funny you know one day i'm scrolling through facebook and then i see you're running for local some local government job talk to us about that Anyway, I don't know how much did you hear about the girls. I don't know if you heard much, but um, we went up there. DSS was involved, and we ended up with three of my wife's great nieces, and they've been with us three years now. And they, they're, I mean, you know, it's like I got another chance to help these kids get their life together. Now they're all honor roll students. They're doing well, and and uh, I'm so proud of them. I love them deaf like they were my own. They are mine. You know, they still have a mom and dad, and they know that, but they're still mine now. But anyway, I, uh, you know, and I, I, I'm back at home in Macau, and I'm thinking, man, we could change some things around here. And I decided to run for local councilman here after I let the mayor talk me into it a little bit. And uh, I did. I won. And I think I like to say I made a difference in the community some. And I had no intentions of running for a second term. But uh, once again, the mayor, he convinced me to go ahead and run. And so I run a second term without really uh, politicking and I had, I was tied with the, I mean, literally deadlock vote. We were tied. We had to have a runoff and the guy wanted to run off. I just, I didn't, uh, it's wasn't that I didn't want to help others because I did. I would, I was working food banks. I was helping people. I was, you know, I would deliver meals to the elderly. I was, running errands for people and I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm not bragging about anything I've done. I just felt like I didn't have to be on the town council to do it. I felt like I could do it a little more privately where people wouldn't see every or pay attention to everything I was doing. You get what I'm saying? Oh, you know, and I totally get it. And, you know, even God said, you know, even the Lord says that, you know, what you do in private makes more of a difference than what you're doing. And I was more, as a councilman, more people were seeing it, and I thought, well, I just kind of didn't like it that way. And so I, 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 I'm kind of glad I lost the, the, the runoff because that way I didn't have to worry about people watching everything I was doing. I wasn't under the public eye as much. But, you know, I still... Um, wanted to help my people in my hometown. And, you know, recovery is amazing. You know, like uh, last week I went to dinner with one of the local judges and, you know, and, and a couple friends of mine are all mayors of towns. And here's this guy that was so afraid of having to stand in front of a judge, you know, for right. being such a screw up. Now I'm going right. to dinner with judges. It's, a, it's amazing what recovery can do. So talk talk to us a little bit about what you're doing now and tell us how 
you know, what a day in the life of okay, Joe. Okay, well, um, you know, uh, I had a couple of incidents in Afghanistan. I had broke a few bones. Uh, the terrain was so bad over there, and I think I was one of the clumsy ones. I just couldn't get my feet under me. <laughs> so um, between the few physical deformatories I got from there and the mental aspect, you know, I started going through the VA and I finally got a VA service connected disability through them, through the VA. And uh, I recently said with the girls going back to school, you know, the coronavirus has, you know what it's done to the world. We don't need to talk about that, but uh, I started a new job. I said, I'm just get out and work a part-time job, see how I like it, get back in the work field. And I went to work for Walmart. Believe it or not, they are a big time supporter of the military. They hire veterans. They love hiring veterans. And um, I can't speak well enough of them. I used to, I used to think they were one of the big, you know, conglomerates who were just trying to push everybody out of business, but they are, they help veteran communities, especially down and out veterans, believe it or not. They're real big on that. But, um, so, you know, I, got, I, I messaged you and I said, you know, what is your goal for being on the podcast? And, you, you know, we were talking about the 22 and the 16 yeah. soldiers that commit suicide every day. Um, so what can we do to help bring those numbers down to zero what kind of re- resources well are out there we all know the helpline uh, 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 253 help there the veterans there's a veterans option for it um but you know as veterans there's something about us guys and you know what i'm talking about there's something in us that says we can't just talk to anybody. We don't, I don't know why, but we don't work well just talking to anyone. We have to, they don't know what we've been through. You know what I'm saying? That's how we are. Yeah. So we have to, we have to look out for one another. And now I'm going to give a shout out to a certain young lady. Her, her name's Sheena Marcano, and uh, if I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I said your name wrong, baby, please forgive me. I love you anyway. But, you know, a few years back, I was, I was in a bad place, and she reached out to me, and she just started talking to me, and she understood. She's a combat veteran. She'd been there. She knew. She just taught me off the ledge. You know what I'm saying? And then there's been other guys, uh, Bo Rouse, one of my dearest friends in the world. I love him to death. He's come and got me a few times. He said, hey, man, let's take a ride. Let's go. Let's go have a bit. Now, this was back in my drinking days, and he knew drinking wasn't the best thing for me, but he knew sometimes taking me for a beer was better than letting me kill myself, too. You know what I mean? And um, it, yeah. it looked out for me a few times. Uh Mahaney was 
he was kind of MIA on me for a while, man. I didn't realize that he was, I did not know he was having such a hard time, although I should have, but I wasn't keeping in touch with him no more than he kept in touch with me. You know, I just kind of felt bad about it, but, um, he was in a rough place too. And, uh, I, I did not, that was one thing I didn't realize there were other guys who were hurting just as well. We have to look out for one another. If you're out there and you're listening to this and you're thinking about ending your life, there's help. Call us, email one of us, hit us up on Facebook, give us, send us a message, say, Hey, can you help me out a little bit? I'm, I'm hurting. I need some resources. We can find you resources. There are, uh, Jeremy Reyes, uh, Another one of the great guys, one my brother, I love him to death. He's found uh, a few places that he works with or has worked with. That's in um, you, Mister Coffin. Let me tell you, people, if you don't know the guy, look him up, find him on Facebook, find him on Instagram, whatever. Follow his uh, his podcast, listen to his uh, the Comeback Coach, man. He's got a great story to tell. He's even written a book. You guys kick in and check out his story. Kaufman wasn't always, he wasn't the red hot NCO that he turned out to be. He was, <laughs> Hell no. I told everybody. He was, hey, he was one of the bad ones too. We, we all had our bad times, but he was a bad one for a while. But he's a great guy and he can help us. He can help you guys. If you're out there listening, just know um, taking your own life is not worth it. There are resources. There's even help financially out there. You just have to be you have to be patient and you have to be willing to look and you have to you have to ask for it. People don't know you're hurting if you're not asking. Amen. Amen, brother. Well, I want to thank you so much. Uh, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. If this show affects you, please leave a comment on our uh, on Apple. Just let them know that we're trying to save lives. Guys, if you love coffee, definitely check out Soldier Girl Coffee. Um, great tasting coffee. And you will not. And it's veterans, a veteran owned company that is um, giving veterans jobs. So it's, it's 100% veteran, 100% of the time. Jody, brother, I love you so much. Um, I'm so grateful for you. Um, and I'm so grateful that you're in my inner circle and that I, I can always talk to you whenever I'm, I'm feeling. Hey, I love now. you, man. Love Thank you, you for your time, for allowing me to be here to, uh, tell my story a little bit. And, uh, Yep, this will go out in a couple of weeks. So, uh, and I'll let you know what it is, and then I'll Thank post you, it everywhere. And love you, man. I right, love you. Have a beautiful week. Love brother. you, brother. Love you. Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.